Welcome, and thank you for joining us as we listen to the lively messages of Brother Nick Manzi, a down-to-earth pastor who communicates God's truth in understandable and practical terms as you apply the Bible to your own life. Amen. Amen. Well, it's good to see you all back here today. Uh, you know, we've been doing uh, a series on the heroes of faith here in the evening times, and we're going to continue that tonight. But if you notice, in the evenings, I'm a little bit different on the way I preach than I do in the morning. I try to do a little bit more teaching. Not that I lack the teaching in the morning. I hope I bring that in the morning as well. But I want to be able to dive deeper into the Word, because you know, a lot of us that are coming here on Sunday nights, we hear the same stories over and over and over again. And I want to try to give you a new nugget from that story that you might be able to take home with you. And I hope I get the chance to do that again today. So if you're with me today, please open up your, your Bibles to the book of Ruth. And we're going to start in chapter 1, verse 1, and we're going to look at two chapters. And just like last week, we don't have time to read all two chapters. So we're going to fly through the story and uh, pick verses from here and there and then kind of expound on those verses. And you, you have to understand really what's going on here as you're turning there to the book of Ruth. The setting of that story in that era starts immediately with verse 1 of chapter 1 in Ruth. Are you there? Say amen. amen. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And let's pray before we go to, before we continue. Can we do that? Lord, Father, I just want to thank you so much for today, and I thank you for this opportunity to praise you and to worship you, Father. And I, Father, I thank you for allowing it to be well with my soul, Father, by giving us Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for that blessing that you've given us. So in his name, right now, forgive us where we fail you, so we can come to your throne with a clean heart. Clear our minds and our hearts of everything good, bad, and different that's going on in our lives, so the only thing right now we're focusing on you. And Father, I just pray... As you fill us with the Holy Spirit, teach us what we, you'd have us to know, have us to learn, so we might be able to use it for your glory. We love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what we got to know here is what's going on is the author wants us to immediately connect this story with the stories that we were just reading in the book of Judges. All right, immediately we talk about Ruth, but it's connected. It's kind of like a trilogy that goes on over here, and we want to make sure that we're understanding that it's just a continuation of the book of Judges. So what do we know about the book of Judges? Do you remember we talked a little bit about this last Sunday night and a couple weeks ago even. If we talked about what we found was that there was a cycle of events that kind of goes like this. You have moral failure first off, right? The, the Israelites came to moral failure and then all of a sudden there was military oppression. People from other lands came in and started taking over the lands. And then the Israelites call for help. We have a call for help. And then all of a sudden there's a raising of a deliverer. And in that case, it was a judge, a new judge that came in to rule the land in Israel. And there was victory followed by a short period of peace because it was always short, whether the man stayed a God follower or not, he wasn't going to live forever. So it was a short time period. And then the, that savior, that supposed savior dies and the cycle begins all over again and continues throughout the book of Judges. Now here, it seems like we have, they're in a similar situation. They're not necessarily in military oppression during this time period, but they're in famine. And you see that in Verse 1, that there was a famine in the land. 
See, in this context, the famine would appear, appear to be a sign of God's chastening of the people. Just as the oppression of an enemy coming into the land was elsewhere. Because you remember what happened when the, in the book of Judges. Other lands came in to Israel when only Israel was not obeying God. If they did come in when they were obeying God, God took care of the Israelites, didn't he? He took care of them nonetheless. Because there's still a land of Israel out there, even today in this world that we talk call, uh, you know, 2019. But while there was no formal cry for help, the story resonates with Naomi's and Ruth's uh, need for deliverance. Now, this case of deliverance doesn't come in the form of a savior, at least not in this instance. Although next week we're going to look at Boaz and you know the story of Boaz. It does in a bit come as a savior in that sense. But the salvation in this story, now remind you, I'm not talking salvation of your eternal life. Okay, I'm talking being saved from the situation that they're in now. The salvation in this story comes through the faith in Ruth. That's kind of getting ahead of ourselves at this point. See, the story begins with a famine that's going on in Bethlehem, which ironically in Hebrew means house of bread. Did you realize that? But yet there's a famine going on here. So the land of promise is beset by a famine. The house of bread is without any bread. So the story right away starts badly and it just keeps on going downhill from there. So rather than call to God for help, Elimelech decides to leave the promised land and migrate to Moab. Now, things may have been bad in Judah. Sure, you know, they had famine going on. But in Moab, they would be far worse. See, the people of Moab were pagans. They made it clear that over the centuries, they had little love for the people of Israel. And if you read the historical version of the Old Testament, you'll see that the feeling was mutual between the Israelites and the Moabites. They just did not like each other. And Deuteronomy 23.3, it declares that an Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Do you think that the Israelites did not like the Moabites? (laughs) See, the Moabites, they were a cursed people, a people with whom the Israelites were even forbidden to seek a treaty of friendship with. They weren't even supposed to be friends. They couldn't even think about being with them. So it wasn't a good strategic move for Elimelech to take his wife and his two teenage sons over to the land that all of Israel condemned. Especially since there was a famine in Judah. And the reason being, it was only going to be inevitable that the sons would end up marrying Moabite women. So what seems 
fairly clear from the, these opening verses in the book of Ruth, and I read just a portion of verse 1, but, you know, there's a, uh, moving on down to the, the first six, seven verses over here, what seems fairly clear is that just like Gideon's family, Elimelech was an Israelite in name more than in action. Remember we talked about Gideon and how his family had all those idols in his house, even a shrine in his house. I wonder how many Christians today are Christians by name and not by action. And I think we all can fall into that boat every once in a while. Hopefully very little compared to where we, should, where we could be. But he still regarded himself as one of God's chosen people. But he didn't let the, the effect of the practical decisions of life. And what happens next seems to confirm the ill-judged nature of his actions. See, Omelech dies. And sure enough, his two sons go ahead and marry two Moabite women. Well, they, those sons died too. And then there's just three women left in this story. Naomi, Oprah, and Ruth. Orpah and Ruth. And they had no visible means of support. There was nothing for them. So Naomi hears that the Lord has again come to the aid of the people of Israel. And they're giving them food and they're able to get back from this famine. So she decides to pick up from Moab and go back and move her life over back to Israel. And it's as though Naomi kind of knew all along that when they moved over to Moab, it was wrong in the first place. So she certainly realizes that it's the Lord who's giving them food again. And she sets out with her two daughters-in-law to return to Bethlehem. But then she stops. She suddenly realizes that it isn't just her who's involved here. Orpah and Ruth are Moabites. They're not going to return home like Naomi is. They're going to be going to a strange land. Bethlehem is not the place for them. See, there they're going to be foreigners. And from what I just read you in Deuteronomy 23, well, they're going to be subjected to all sorts of abuse from other people. Who knows what kind of abuse that they'd be subjected to by the local men. So she makes an incredibly generous gesture towards them. And urges them to go back to their families in Moab. Never mind that Naomi now, if they do go back, will be completely alone. And have no support system, no social support, no financial support. She won't have any of that. But she's looking out for her two new daughter-in-laws. There's almost a note of sarcasm in her voice when she says to them in verse 8, The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. As if she wanted to add, even though God hasn't acted like that towards me. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like that? That you, see, you want the best for other people, but you just wish God would give you the best sometimes? See, that sense of bitterness towards God comes out even more clearly in verse 13 when those two young women insist on going with Ruth and she tells them, No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. 
there's a real sense of hopelessness there, isn't there? Almost as if she's saying that she's some sort of jinx. You hang around me, I got a black cloud over my head. Things happen to me all the time, and I promise you, it'll probably happen to you too. Or maybe she's thinking that God's punishing her and will go on punishing her for leaving Judah to be able to go to Moab. And it'd be better if they weren't there to share that punishment with her. Well, there's something real about Naomi here, isn't there? You know, I think sometimes we look at a person like this and we push them off instead of saying, I'm glad they're sharing their feelings. I'm glad they're sharing their feelings because not all of us have a happy situation every minute of the day, do we? So we can't put on this face, this fake mask on our face. We must be able to tell people our feelings. We talk about being a family of God consistently throughout services that we have here at Central Baptist Church. So that means that we must say when somebody asks you, how are you doing? You must say the truth. And if you don't want to hear the truth, don't ask. But anyway, I digress. Her mourning for her husband and now her son has led her to despair, almost self-pity. And when she gets back to Bethlehem, she tells the people not to call her Naomi anymore, which means pleasant, but to call her Mara, which means bitter. Because the, the Lord has afflicted her. She says, I went away full, but now I come back empty. It's as, as if though going back to Bethlehem, to her old home, he, it's brought out all the force of her anger and grief. And she's just laying it out there. You know, someone translated her words once. Don't call me sweetheart. Call, call me sourpuss. And we look at people like that sometimes, don't we? But she's laying her heart out there. See, our narrator wants us to feel that sense of loss and despair that Naomi is feeling at this point. It's, it's a feeling that many people have felt throughout the ages. A sense of God abandoning them, or even in Naomi's case, perhaps, of targeting them for punishment for something that they did. She believes her situation is about as bad as it can get. Now, I'm not sure we can fully understand it from the perspective of our modern society. But she's without social support. Nobody will talk to her because she's a widow. She has no source of income because there's no more brothers to take up her as a wife. No one to protect her from who, anyone who might choose to do her harm. No sons, no sons-in-law to help her. And even her sense of God looking after her, well, that's gone too. See, we as onlookers to our situation are invited by our author to be able to empathize, empathize with the emotional devastation that she's feeling. To understand what Naomi or Mara, whatever you want to call her at this point, is going through as she directs her anger towards God. Just like Job and Jeremiah were the author of so many of the Psalms, she feels let down. 
She feels like she's punished beyond what she deserves. So there's a valuable lesson just in those first few verses there for us, especially for times when we find ourselves in a similar situation, when we feel let down by God, when we feel like we're being punished by God, when we feel like God's not listening to us because our walls are caving in. Well, here's your lesson. God can handle how, you, uh, how weak feel to him. We can express to God how we feel to him, and God can handle that. God can handle that. Now, I know, man, we, we can't all the time. Even the thickest of skins get really thin at times. But God can handle us expressing how we feel to him. See, there's no sense in this passage of Naomi being in the wrong for crying out in her pain and despair to God. She's not putting blame on him, is she? Her anger is simply reporting what her feelings are. It's natural. It's natural to express anger and the hurt we feel. We must tell God how we feel. That's part of the communication. We talked about how I communicate with my wife this morning. Well, if she upsets me, I need to tell her. Lord knows she'll tell me when she's upset with me. (laughs) And that's okay. But we need to tell God that too. We need to be there. He's there for us. And he says, cast all your cares. All of them. Not 90%, not even 99%, all your cares. But it's also important and probably just as important to realize that the story goes on. Our life goes on and we need to express those feeling to God, but move on with our life and not sit in a corner. This is where it isn't where it ends. That's just the beginning Naomi's grief will not last forever, nor will yours or mine. We can get through this. See, God has not forgotten Naomi, even if that's how she feels. And here again, we find a resonance with what we found in Judges. Just when they feel like they're at their worst, God sends a Savior. He always seems to send that right person in your life. At least he does in mine. When things are going wrong, that right person comes about and just turns it around. Prays with me, smiles, just says, have a good day. Whatever it might be. And it kind of changes your demeanor, doesn't it? And that's what God does in in this story along with our lives. But back to our story with Naomi's urging, Oprah decides to go back to her people, but not Ruth. See, Ruth sees something in Naomi, something in her character, something perhaps in the faith of, in God of Israel that helps her to make up her mind to stay. And she says that Naomi's words that are, that are full of significance beyond what it appears at first glance. And in verse 16, she says, Uh, For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. 
And here's the hinge around where the whole story turns. This is the decision that affects not only the life of Ruth and Naomi, but as we'll see next week, the whole nation of Israel. In a sense of God's plan for the salvation of Israel and the whole world hangs on this seemingly insignificant decision of an insignificant Moabite widow. Ordinary people doing ordinary things make for an extraordinary story. How often do we see this sort of thing happening in the pages of the Bible? It's over and over. Grace is found in unexpected places. A member of a cursed nation turns to God, binding her life to his, and is welcomed in. But this decision of Ruth is made all the more remarkable by the words she chooses. And there's an amazing similarity to the words of God to Jacob in Genesis 28:15, where God says, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Or the words of, his, of God to his people repeatedly throughout Scripture, I will be your God and you shall be my people. It says, as if the Ruth has taken God's words and used them to bind herself to Naomi and to the people of God. See, there's something in the way that she says it that implies that this is a covenant, not just a promise, a covenant that she's making with Naomi. When she says in verse 17, the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. That sounds like a covenant to me, doesn't it? This isn't just any journey to Judah for Ruth. It's a conversion. She's turned, she has turned away from her pagan past to become a follower of the God of Israel. Your God will be my God, she says. So why does Ruth make this permanent covenant with Naomi? Well, the only conclusion we can come to is that the time that she spent with Naomi, she got to learn an important lesson. The primary moral response expected by the God of Israel to his people is a covenant love like his own. That's what you and me need to be sharing with folks. That covenant love, that agape love that has no boundaries. No limitations. A covenant love that expressed not just in our relationship with him, but in our relationships with each other. That, of course, is one of the great failings of God's people in this this period of Judges and continues to be their great failing throughout Scripture. Listen to what Hosea said a few hundred years later in Hosea 4, 1 and 2. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. By swearing and lying, killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break all restraint with bloodshed upon bloodshed. He was describing the 8th century BC, but he could equally have been describing our age, our era today. 
We can see that there's moral anarchy in our world today, isn't there? We can see that there's a failure of fidelity in personal relationships. And I'm not just talking about a, a, a husband and wife. People don't care about each other anymore. They don't trust each other anymore. They're hateful and they're not faithful to one another anymore. And back then there was a famine in the land. I don't want to see what our famine might be. There was no bread, even in the house of bread. Yet, here in this encounter between two ordinary women, a different pattern of relationship emerges. There, be, there may be no faithfulness in Israel, but here, Ruth, the pagan convert, shows the sort of covenant love and faithfulness that God desires of Naomi, of God's own people. And so we find Ruth and Naomi returning to Bethlehem just as the barley harvest is beginning. What a coincidence. Amen? With the return of covenant loyalty and faithfulness, the house of bread has grain once again. And so we read on and Ruth is able to be able to go out to the harvest to glean the grain that's left behind by the harvesters, if you recall. And the grace, the, uh, God's grace is magnified and it turns out she's chosen now by chance, right? In the field of her relative Boaz. That chance was a sarcastic remark, by the way. And it seems that there's some faithfulness in the land still. Even if it takes someone like Ruth to bring it out. Boaz makes sure that she's looked out for and protected. And at the end of the day, she returns back to Naomi with a good-sized sack of grain in her hands. And the first part of our story finishes with Ruth living with Naomi, safe and to some extent provided for. But there's more to come next week, so make sure you're here to hear it. But when you think about it, the world you and I live in today, it really isn't that much different than the Old Testament, is it? Human relationships are far from happy far too many times. People find it hard to make, it la make lasting friendships. Eric Fromm, he, had, he wrote a book called The Sane Society, and he observed that there is not much love to be found in the world today. There is rather a superficial friendliness, concealing a distance, an indifference, a subtle mistrust. Now, whether we're different from any of the generations past is hard to tell, but the reality is that lasting friendships, even lasting marriages, are hard to achieve today. People feel isolated. Tensions and re relationships of all kinds are commonplace. Ethnic tension, divorce, suicide, they're all in the increase. More and more people are living alone, whether by choice or by circumstance. So the words of Hosea are true today just as much as they were true in his day. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. By swearing and lying, killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break all restraint with bloodshed upon bloodshed. 
But the encouragement of the story of Ruth that brings is that you and I can do something about that. Do you believe that? You and I can do something about that. We may be only one person, or, but we can make a difference. We can make a difference. So often, God uses individual believers as the catalyst to bring about change to those around them. All too often. What this story has the boldness to suggest is that a single act of covenant loyalty on the part of a foreign pagan widow, well, it could be the key to the whole future of Israel's blessing. So we too can have a significant effect on the way our world develops by our individual acts of covenant love. That's why Jesus gave us that commandment that we love one another. That we love one another. There's no message more powerful to this sick world of ours than it's possible for Christians to love one another with God's covenant love. See, such acts of moral heroism can change the future of our world. When I look at the story of Ruth, and I see what this family went through. I wonder, why is it different than today? Why do I not believe it's the same thing going on in our lives today? We have the same kind of problems, the same challenges, the same moral indifference out there in the world that we face but we still have the same God who will deliver us. We have the same God who loves us. We have the same God who'll lift us up if we just go to him. But we also have the same God who will listen to every one of your cares. The same God that will console you and hug you and love you with the covenant love that he wants you to share with someone else. The same one. So when we look at these stories like Ruth, And we say, oh, I know that story. It's an easy story to remember. And it's a great story, but we don't need to go over that. Look for a new nugget today. Because there's always a nugget you can take from a story. And try to use it for your life. I know I will. I hope you join me. Nick Manzi is Senior Pastor of Central Baptist Church in Port St. Lucie, Florida. If you want more information about the church, or if you're ready to have Jesus as your Lord and Savior, contact Brother Nick at PastorNickCentralBaptistPSL at gmail.com. God bless you as you go about the rest of your day, and thank you for listening and sharing our podcast.